Okay, just a few announcements before we get started. Just remember that for those of you who are listening to the, the, the church history lectures, I pre-recorded the one for this Monday night. That will be out uh, and posted on Monday so that you can watch it from the Ed Bride or on Dean Bible Ministries or whatever. And then the next week is going to be, uh, it's going to be posted as well. We'll pre-record that. But what happened this afternoon at 3 o'clock was I got alerted to the fact that I tested negative on the uh, COVID test, which meant I could fly. So everything pulled together, I think, it's pulling together. And I fly out tomorrow at 3.30 to go to Kiev and we will be back on the 12th. And so there's a lot of things out there that have smoothed out, but, but that's only on the way over there. It, in two weeks, who knows what's going to be going on. And this crazy government we have is, is putting up new things that people returning, U, U.S. citizens returning need to do or to have. But the nice thing about it is they don't put any penalties in there and they don't know how to police it. They just want to so in other words, they're just giving you their opinion. And so we uh, need to pray, though, that things will go well on my, on my way back and come together just as they did uh, for, for leaving today. Yeah, it was just a, one of those last-minute things. God did a Hail Mary, and it all worked out. So um, I'll be there uh, Saturday, after, Saturday afternoon. So pray for me in doing that. And then... Uh, I will be recording next week sometime. I'll be pre-recording the classes for the church history course, and those will go up that that next Monday, which will be the 8th. And so that will all be taken care of, and everything will be, be squared away for that. So, you know, sometimes life in the angelic conflict or the angelic rebellion is just exciting. Always have to remember those promises. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not for I am with thee. Be not dismayed for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusted in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So we will have a few moments of silent prayer so we can confess sin if necessary, make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. Of course, confession is always in silent prayer. And then after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are to walk by faith and not by sight, and we trust in your word, for your word is sufficient. You have revealed yourself to us, and Father, we are so very grateful that as we come together to study your word, that we are reminded that this, your word was in your mind from eternity past, just exactly what needed to be revealed, what would be revealed and the sufficiency of that which is revealed. We can trust it. We can rely upon it. And despite all of the attacks and all of the criticism and all of the skepticism that your word has encountered over the years, nothing has torn it down. So, Father, we pray that tonight as we study your word, again, we will be encouraged, strengthened with uh, understanding another episode that highlights not only your judgment but also your grace and deliverance. And Father, we trust you that whatever is going on in our life, in our world, in our nation, that that you will be 
glorified in the way in which we respond and react to these circumstances. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, one thing I'm sure came to your mind when I said I was going to be gone. Who's going to be in the pulpit? Wayne House will be here both Sundays, and he will be here on Tuesday and Thursday night. It's nice having Wayne 55 miles away now. And Wayne will be talking about uh, presentations on the historical reliability of the text, the trustworthiness of Scripture. And so this will, you'll learn a lot, and that will be challenging. One, tonight we're talking about Sodom. I won't say much about the archaeological issues related to it. I have taught on this before, and up until about 15 years ago, or somewhere between 15 to 10 years ago, another site that is called uh, Tal, I had to call Wayne on this because I don't even know the name of the site. It's the Tal, T-A-L, Tal El Hammam Excavation. And we've never taken a group there. I'm, I hope to, but it's in a strange little location. If you had, you know, if you're, you got Jerusalem here and you head east and you cross over into Jordan, you don't really cross right there. You have to go north and then you have to come back down because it's in this little bitty pocket just to the northeast of the Dead Sea, but it's in Jordan. But to get there, you have to go to the border crossing, which is north of there, and then take this circuitous route to get back there. And I have heard debates, questions, issues. Randy Price is still absolutely convinced the location of of, uh, Sodom is in the traditional location down on the mid-eastern uh, midpoint on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, and that's been the traditional location. They've uncovered a number of things that seem to indicate historically that that's, that's its location, and yet there are others who are just as qualified, just as committed to Scripture, who have found this location. It was a popular location in the 19th century and before, and it's on the northeast side, corner of of the Dead Sea. And if you read in Scripture, there's two things that stand out. It talks about how everything from, that that Sodom was well watered, like the land going down to Zoar in Egypt. And you look at anywhere around the Dead Sea where the traditional location, well watered, is not a term you would ever use. But what they have uncovered in this location is a lot of underground wells, so it is well watered. The other thing is that when in Genesis 13, when Abraham's uh, men and his uh, cowboys and uh, shepherds were fighting with Lot's cowboys and shepherds, and there were uh, there they were not getting along, they decided they needed to split up and. Abraham graciously said, you pick whatever place you want to go. And Lot looked down, and he said, we'll t- I-, I want to move down there, that city that, that we can see from where we are, and there up near Shechem, or just south of south Shea, there between Bethel and I. And, and, and so Abram said, okay, that's where you're going to go. And he went down there to be with, with the people in the valley. If you're standing there, you can't see the traditional location unless you have x-ray vision because of all the hills and mountains that are in between. But you can see the north end of the Dead Sea. And to me, that seems that's very simplistic because I don't know all the other ins and outs, and I've looked at all the scriptural detail. I have not read anything on this. But that, to me, has is a very simple... Uh, reality that that I think, well, that certainly seems to suggest something. So they found a lot of stuff in their excavations in the lot of 10 years, and Wayne will probably talk about that a little bit at some point. So let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. And we're in the section that is talking about the false teachers that are going to come and that God brings judgment on these false teachers. And you have two kinds of false teachers, those that are within the church and those that are without the church, those that are outside of the church. And what we have here is a 
statement by Peter that recognizes that they are, uh, that they're both, allows for both. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul is talking to the the uh, elders from the congregations around Ephesus, and they come down to the coast, and they meet him at Miletus, he says, there will be wolves that come up from among yourselves. So it's clear that their false teachers will come up from, from within the church, and they will come up from outside of the church. It's not just unbelievers that get caught up and deceived and go into false teaching, but it is also also believers. But there are consequences. Whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, there are consequences. There's the judgment of God, and it does not mean there will be a loss of salvation, but there will definitely be a loss of rewards and a loss of privileges, and and who knows what other things may, may come that way. So as we look at our passage in 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, there are these different examples that are given about God's judgment as well as his deliverance. And so we looked at the first example, which had to do with the fact that God did not spare the angels. So there's a judgment on the angels. They were half of the problem that caused the problem in, before the before the flood. The other half were the uh, were, were the people that followed them. And we have read through the passages in Genesis six how God looked down and, uh, in an anthropopathic way, regretted that He had made man because the thoughts of His heart were evil continuously. It is a picture of rank. Wickedness. If you can ma- imagine a world wherein all of the abuses and um, perversions that go on, for example, at uh, Carnival down in Brazil, and combine that with the day-to-day perversions of San Francisco and a few other places, and then multiply that by 10... That's pretty much what it was like all over the world prior to the flood. It's, it's heavily demon-influenced, and it is in rank perversion. And we know that because there's a comparison of the sexual perversion of, of those before the flood with the sin of those in Sodom and Gomorrah over in, in uh, Jude uh, chapter 7. So that's what we're looking at here. Uh, there is an emphasis here in uh, Peter on Lot as a righteous man, and so it is talking about what it's like for this righteous man to be living among the pagans and, and the pagan perversion uh, at his time. So what we're going to do is first look at these passages in Second Peter, then we'll look at the passage in Jude, and then we will just sort of summarize some key principles at that point, and then when I get back from my trip, we'll look at the Genesis 19 passage and deal with the issue of what does God really say about homosexuality and what does God say about the sin at Sodom. And I'm going to front load this a little bit because what you will hear from those who are in the pro-LGBTQP dot 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 uh, crowd, then um, they say that the sin of Sodom was just arrogance. And they go to a passage in, uh, I, I, in either Jeremiah or Isaiah, I can't remember right now, and argue that, see, that that whole thing is about arrogance. And what we'll discover is that there are numerous passages in the prophets where Sodom is used as a nasty nickname by God for those who lived in Jerusalem because that's who they were acting like. And it's not a literal term. So when they're accused of arrogance by God in, in the prophets... It, he's and and God says addresses them as Sodom. He's not at all talking about literal so- Sodom. He is using that as just a nickname to show how bad they are. And we'll get into that. But you have to read those texts very carefully to make sure you you can follow what what is being said. 
So we'll begin by looking at at Second Peter, and in Second Peter two four, just to pick up where we've been. For if God, that starts a conditional clause that goes all the way down to the first part of. Um, to the beginning of 9, actually. In 9, we have the then clause. So 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 are all the if clause. So that's a lot of different components to this condition. And what God, or what Peter is saying, if God did not spare those who sinned, uh, the angels, the people that lived at Noah's time, the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, but God also was delivering those who were righteous, those who were believers, righteous Noah, righteous Lot. He's delivering them. And then his conclusion is where we get our application. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve us, uh, to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So, uh, that's that's the principle. So he starts off with the angels when they send. Now, some translations, and it's a legitimate because all it is is an adjectival participle, and it could be when and it could be who. If it's when, then it would indicate that it's, the, as I pointed out last time, that the timing, that when they send is connected uh, time-wise to when they were judged. And that's really backed up more specifically in the first Peter, first Peter passage, where it's very clear that that's when the judgment was. It's not that these these angels are judged sometimes after the after the conquest, which is one view that's out there today. So if God didn't spare these angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus, a, com- a component of, of Sheol. For unbelievers, they're they're locked down under chains of darkness, and he uh, these this chains of darkness. It's a different word from just typical darkness. It's a term that indicates a deep, gloomy, almost impenetrable darkness. So they're down there awaiting judgment, and we have this same language here. Uh, in Second Peter two seventeen, the blackness of darkness forever. In Jude six, describes this. What uses the same word again to describe the everlasting chains under darkness. And in Jude thirteen, the blackness of darkness forever. So this is a technical term for this kind of judgment, and we have it uh, in our chart of Sheol. There's uh, the the components of of. Uh, torments on the right uh, are the the whole area here is the uh, where the unbelievers go you have torments tartarus and the abyss you have the impassable barrier between the two so one side can't escape to the other that is the unbelievers can't escape to paradise nobody in paradise would want to escape the other way and all the old testament believers went to abraham's bosom and after the cross the paradise was taken uh, to heaven. So, second example, God did not spare, just as God did not spare the angels, he did not spare the ancient world, he doesn't treat them lightly, but he preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. And we went through the passages to talk about Noah uh, being referred to many times as righteous. And this is a, a last time, I don't know what was going on in my head. Um, but it's not positional righteousness, it's imputed righteousness. And uh, you don't have positional righteousness until you're in Christ and you have positional righteousness in the church age. So he's righteous, and he's preaching a gospel of how to be righteous. And it's through the imputation of righteousness, which we'll see in just a minute. In First Peter 3.20, This is where the timeline is very clear. They were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So that's very clear that they were disobedient when, when or during the time of the patience of God waiting in the days of Noah. So that's all uh, all prior to the flood. 
Jude 6 we looked at, there talks about these angels who did not keep their original estate, their first domain, their first abode, but they abandoned it. They abandoned their uh, proper dwelling place. And he has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, I don't really know how people who deny that the sons of God in Genesis 6 can't be angels, how they handle this. Because it's very clear when you look at the New Testament explanation and interpretation of Genesis 6 that that's what it's talking about, that it's not talking about the original rebellion of the angels with Satan because then all of the fallen angels would be locked down uh, in, in Tartarus. And then we come to Jude 7, which is our parallel passage on Sodom and Gomorrah, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, remember there were five cities, that them is a feminine plural, uh, and so that relates to the cities, since they, that is the cities, it's feminine, in the same way as these, that's masculine. Now, a masculine pronoun doesn't relate to a feminine pronoun to, or to a feminine noun like cities. So these has to refer to some masculine noun. And the only masculine noun is in the previous verse, and that's the angels. So it, what it's saying is Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them imitated the sexual sin. They had the same kind of sin, the sexual sin, uh, of the um, of the fallen angels, and so it it describes that sin of the fallen angels of both sins actually as gross immorality and going after strange flesh now for the fallen angels, the strange flesh is human flesh they were attracted to the beautiful women in the uh, antediluvian world, and they wanted to experience something they couldn't experience in their angelic bodies, which is sexual relations, and so they took on human bodies so they could do that. For the those in Sodom and Gomorrah, the strange flesh is, this, is homosexuality, uh, women related to women and men to men, which is, violates what God designed, and that's why it's called gross immorality. And these are exhibited as an example of undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Well, in these cases, they were unbelievers. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, the only believers that were there were Lot and his daughters, Lot and his family. So last time I structured it this way, pointing out the similarities that you have God sparing, God does not spare these two groups, the angels, the ancient world, or three groups, the angels, those in the ancient world, or the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and those in the ancient world at the time of Noah are both referred to by this word ungodly, a Greek word we talk about godly, or our, God has provided godliness, you, E-U at the beginning, you sabay, and that indicates positive spiritual growth and maturity. And then you look at the uh, this word, it's ah, with an A at the beginning. And that's uh, a Greek U-N. We put, uh, the, if we say that something is necessary, and then we say, you don't need to do it, it's unnecessary. We add you in at the beginning, and it negates, uh, negates the word. You can say something is holy, and that's positive, and then if it's not, you say it's unholy. So the U-N prefix in English is the same as the A prefix in Greek. For example, if you believe in the one, literal 1,000-year reign of Christ, you are referred to as a millenarian a mil because you believe in the millennium from the Latin word milli, meaning a thousand. But if you don't believe in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ, you are an millennial. They took a Greek root and, I mean, a Latin root and added a Greek prefix to it. That's how crazy language is. So that's what we have here is the ungodly, the not godly, the not spiritual, those who are not growing, maturing, those who are not regenerate. 
And so that that is the contrast. Now, this verse is the one we're looking at, verses 6, 7, and 8, which talks about the events surrounding the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says that God, uh, <clears throat> and he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes and condemned them to destruction. So this is the judgment side of it making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Same language almost that we have in Jude, that the, being an example. But in contrast to the judgment and destruction of verse 6, there's grace. God graciously provides a way for the survival of Lot and his family. And Lot is called righteous Lot. And it's described here, he was oppressed. And so there's a picture here that even though Lot, when we go to Genesis 19, we'll see Lot. Lot doesn't want to get away. He's, he, just, he, he likes that city life. He likes all the people there. And he'll, he's putting up with all of their sin, but it bothers him in his soul. And the word there, we'll see in a minute, oppressed. He is uh, oppressed by the conduct, the horrible, licentious, lascivious conduct of the wicked. And then Peter says, for that righteous man, second time he's called righteous. You'd never say Lot was righteous when you read the story in Genesis 19. He's a righteous man dwelling among them. It tormented his righteous soul dwelling, uh, it tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing them by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Now, this idea of righteousness is important to understand here because uh, it's, it's an imputed righteousness. It's not saying that Lot lived an experientially righteous life. And so I changed up the verbiage on this a little bit. Righteous here is imputed righteousness. It is the righteousness that comes from faith, that when we trust in God, God imputes to us his righteousness and that, uh, that then is the basis for spiritual growth, what we'll call experiential righteousness. It builds a capacity for righteousness, for, for experiential righteousness. So it's called capacity righteousness or experiential righteousness, and it's made possible because we possess the perfect righteousness of God. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. That's the imputation of righteousness. Now, in Genesis 7, 1, when God tells Noah to go into the ark, he says, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. And he's not talking about Noah being a uh, experientially righteous, although I believe Noah was. He's talking about him uh, that he has uh, uh, imputed righteousness. The way to get imputed righteousness is through faith. Hebrews eleven seven specifically says this about Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world, that is, by the ark, the building of it, he condemns the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So this isn't an experiential righteousness. This is talking about the fact that he's saved the same way you and I are saved with his righteousness that's imputed to him by God because he believed God. This is the same thing that's true as I pointed out last week in Ezekiel 14, 14, and 20 with Daniel, uh, Noah, Daniel, and Job um, that... um, talking about their righteousness. Three, twice they're mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 14. Only, they could only deliver themselves by their own righteousness. It's not works. It is their imputed righteousness. And then the passage in Genesis fifteen six, Abraham is the pattern for imputed righteousness. Paul goes there and Romans 4 uses that as the illustration. He believed God. It is the Hebrew word aman, the noun form is amen, where we say amen. It means to believe something, to affirm it in faith. So Abraham believed God. But what's important here grammatically is that 
you have the it's a perfect tense verb which it doesn't really relate to english per, tenses in 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 hebrew you have two tenses you have imperfect and you have perfect and in some constructions what you have is when when the writer is telling a story he will tell them with a series of imperfect tense verbs that are just the way in which a narrative story is talked about. He did this, he then did that, he said that, they went over here and they did that. And then, and so that's done with this series of imperfect tense verbs, but if right in the middle of it you get a perfect tense verb, it's, it, it's changing the, the, the flow. Something has stopped. And so in Genesis 15, 6, the first five verses, God and Abraham are having this dialogue. Abraham says, I'm childless. Eliezer is faithful to me. Let's make him my heir. And God says, no, I'm going to give you an heir uh, from your own body, you and Sarah. And then it says, and he believed in the Lord. And so most people are going to tell you that means he believed that God was going to give him a child. And it wasn't, and Eliezer wasn't going to be the heir. But the fact that it shifts from this string of imperfect tense verbs to a perfect tense verbs tells you that the narrator is, is uh, saying something different here. He is saying, and Abraham already had believed God. He was already a believer. He had already. He's saying, he's saying like this. He goes through the story and says, now remember. Abraham had already believed God way back there. He was a believer, and God had imputed it to him as righteousness. So that's, that's the idea there. So when we talk about righteous people, the righteous in the Psalms and the ungodly in the Psalms, it's talking about their, their position, as it were. It's not a position in Christ, but it's a position before God because they have imputed righteousness. And that's what it's talking about. It is not necessarily talking about their experiential morality. And so Noah is a preacher of righteousness. He's telling people how to be righteous, believe in the gospel, trust in God, and God will give you his righteousness. And when we come to Second Peter 2.7, God delivered righteous Lot, and uh, then Peter calls him a righteous man in verse 8. So this is all positional in contrast to the ungodly. So that helps you to understand this. And let me tell you, there are passages in Psalms that you're going to read them, and I read them, and we scratch our head and say, how is this imputed righteousness or it sure seems like it's experiential righteousness. It, it seems fuzzy. And and so when you read it and you think that you don't understand it, that's okay. You're not the only one who thinks it might be fuzzy. But this, the, these passages are very clear, and there's a rule in interpretation that you always interpret the unclear by the clear. Now, there's among liberal critics of the Bible, they, they have a flip to that. They say you always interpret the very clear passages by the murky confusion of the unclear passages. And then the conclusion is you don't have a clue what the Bible says about anything. That's the methodology of the, of the liberal. You always go to the exceptions and use those to interpret the really clear things and that just makes everybody confused. So we have to always interpret the unclear by the clear, the the precise by the imprecise, because we may not understand just exactly all the nuances in a particular verse, but but we have to stick with, with a really clear passages, make it clear. You're saved by faith alone, and that's it. Trusting in Christ, that's it, nothing else. And you'll read some other passages, and they may seem to contradict that, but they're fuzzy. So you have to interpret the fuzzy passages by the clear passages, and then you don't get, uh, you don't wander out into the weeds. So what happens in the interpretation and explanation of Sodom and Gomorrah in Second Peter chapter two is that this is the 
third example used, he says, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. Now, Sodom is mentioned 49 times in 48 verses in the Bible. That's not an overwhelming number of mentions, but it's a lot. Uh, 21 of those 49 are in Genesis. So that tells you that that's, that's the almost half of all the references to Sodom are where you'd expect them to be, where their story, and they involve two stories. They involve the story in Genesis chapter 14. Remember when the four kings under Amraphel and Keterleomer and Tidal and these Mesopotamian kings come sweeping down through uh, the valley of the Jordan and they uh, wipe out, defeat all these cities, these perverted cities all around the Dead Sea, and they capture and kidnap everybody as slaves, including Lot and his family, and then they head north to uh, do a circle back and go back home with all the plunder and the slaves. And Abraham goes after them uh, with his servants, and he is going to uh, defeat them and rescue all the uh, captives and bring back all the plunder. And that's when he takes 10% of the plunder and gives it to Melchizedek in, in, in Salem. So that's, that's chapter 14. So Sodom, the king of Sodom, mentioned quite a few times. And then you go to Genesis 19, and it's all about Sodom and God's destruction on Sodom for their sinful, perverted sexual behavior. And that is going to be mentioned many times there, so that's to be expected. And then you get into the New Testament. There are 10 references and in those references, uh, several of them are related to the uh, are in the Gospels. Uh, in the Gospels, you have uh, let's see here. You have four references outside of the Gospels, so six in the Gospels. And all of those passages in the Gospels, Jesus is talking, and he is affirming the historical reality of Sodom. It existed. This isn't some legend, this isn't some myth, this isn't just some story that was made up to explain why the Dead Sea is a lousy place to live. Uh, This is uh, telling you the story about how that really happened in history. And so you have those those times that is mentioned, and that leaves, uh, after you discount the 20 in Genesis and the 10 in the New Testament, that leaves 18 other references in the Old Testament, almost all of which are in the prophets. Uh, You have one each in Amos and Zephaniah and Lamentations, one each there. And then you have four references in Isaiah, three in Jeremiah, and six in Ezekiel. All of those places look at Sodom as a literal event, and they did what what is described in Genesis 19, but that behavior then becomes a, like a proverbial thing, an epithet. It's it's ascribed to uh, the behavior of those in Jerusalem and those in Judah at that time, and we'll look at look at those those passages. So that gives us a framework for understanding the historical events that took place in Genesis, the way in which that's applied to uh, Jerusalem and Judea in the, uh, under the prophets, and then the way it is affirmed in the, in the New Testament. The, Jesus said in Luke 17, 29, But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Now he's treating that as a literal historical event. And so if Jesus treats these events like the creation and the flood and uh, Lot as literal historical events, then they're not just made up, which is what the, the liberal critic says. In Revelation 11.8, it gives us a clue at the end of the Bible as to how the term Sodom is used in an allegorical sense. And it refers to the dead in Jerusalem. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. 
So that gives you a clue. It's literal Jerusalem, but their behavior was so much like Sodom and Gomorrah that it earned that as a nickname. But you have to be able to distinguish between the two. And so we'll look at that in the Old Testament passages. So the context is speaking about the certainty of divine judgment on evil in history as these cataclysmic judgments. So what we see here in verse 7 then is that God delivered. He's the subject of the verb ruamai. He is the one who delivers righteous lot. He does that by sending these two angels to go to Sodom to warn Lot and to tell him that he and his daughters and they've got an opportunity to take the the sons-in-law who are betrothed to the daughters and and Lot's wife with them. The sons-in-law say, no, 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 nothing's going to happen. And then the wife goes with them, but she's, she's more attracted to the to the city than Lot is, and she looks back. They're told not to look back. She looks back, and she gets judged, and she's get, she gets turned into a pillar of salt. And then there's this fire and brimstone that judges everyone. So Lot is delivered, and the word there for delivered is this word in the, in the blue box, uh, ruamai, which is a standard word for just talking about being rescued if you're drowning and somebody rescued you or delivers you from a difficult circumstance or preserves your life or preserves you in the midst of a pandemic, something like that, and saved in that sense. It's not a word that is talking about a spiritual deliverance or a spiritual salvation. It's talking about a physical, health, financial kind of deliverance. And so God delivered him from that uh, from that judgment, that physical judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, and then, we're, but we're told a little bit more about Lot, and we see a side of him that's not portrayed in Genesis 19. He was oppressed, and that word is the word on the right, uh, katapaneo, and it means to wear someone down with toil, to where they just they, they just are tired of the battle. They don't care. They're going to give in and go with the flow. Uh, they're just exhausted, and they're they're treated badly by the people. The, Lot was probably ridiculed. He had, when he first went there, he had a sense of moral standards and right and wrong. But he's in the minority, and so he was made fun of. He was ridiculed. He was. He was accused of being judgmental and harsh and all of these other things that we get called today as believers today when we say, no, we believe that homosexuality is a sin. Now, we don't isolate. I think there's a problem with a lot of legalistic Christians out there who isolate uh, homosexuality and sexual sin as some special categories of sin that make you unsavable. And that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Uh, These sins are listed in lists of other sins that include not only sexual sins, but mental attitude sins and other physical sins, murder, thievery, slander, uh, sins of arrogance, sins of pride. And so when when somebody says, well, well, what do you think about homosexuality? Say, well, you know, it's just a sin like everybody else. They're just sinners. I'm surrounded by people who lie and steal and uh, defraud people all the time, and I don't make an issue out of that or, or single them out because of their sin. And I have my own sins, and I don't want people singling me out either, and I'm not going to single them out. Uh, that, that We're not minimizing the consequences because homosexuality and other sexual sins are an attack on marriage and attack on the family. They're, they're attacks on the divine institutions. But as sins, they're not a special category that is somehow more heinous than other sins. Now, we know that the lusts, but that includes a wide range of lusts, make war against the soul. All lusts make war against the soul, whether it's materialism lust, whether it's power lust, and, and, you know, I just love it watching the drama up there 
all the theater in Washington, D.C., and they're accusing one group of all these things. And, you know, to even say the things they do, you know, they're just, they're just up to their armpits in, in arrogance. And they're so self-absorbed, and there's so much in power lust, and they're pointing fingers at everybody else. And you just have to laugh because that's how the world is. They're not rational. Don't ever ask somebody to explain why do they do what they do. The asking that question, you're assuming it's a rational, logical explanation. And sin and power lust and, uh, are not driven by logic and reason. They are driven by the passions of the sin nature. So he's oppressed, and the word for filthy conduct is this word here, aselgeia, which is a broad term, and it's, it's related to licentiousness. Now, I one time had somebody who came who I knew that after Bible class on a Sunday morning said, can you tell me what licentiousness and lasciviousness are? This is somebody who had a college degree. So I have to explain these terms. Licentiousness is the idea that God in his grace, because he paid for our sins, has given us a license to sin because, after all, Jesus paid for all those sins. So I can go out and I can get drunk or I can go to a party or go carouse and do whatever I want to because I can just abuse God's grace. And, frankly, immature kids abuse the grace of their parents and immature Christians abuse the grace of God. And I think that's just part of spiritual immaturity, and we have to grow out of that stage. I'm not justifying it. I'm just putting it in its right perspective. Lasciviousness has to do with sexual lust, mental attitude sins of, of, of sexual lust and desire and giving rein to that, uh, having uh, debauchery, sexual excess. I mean, today with all the stuff that goes on, people are just immersed in sexual perversion in many subcultures in this country. And and they, that that's all they have to live for. That's the only thing that's going to give any spark of meaning to their life because they've bought into the whole idea that that there's no real meaning or purpose in life, and that's the only thing that lights them up a little bit and gives them a sense of, of, of meaning. So this is, this is, he is just the filthy, this, this lascivious, perverted conduct or the, the behavior of the, of the wicked. And the word there for the wicked is this word, athesmos. Athesmos, interesting word. The A there is what I talked about a little while ago, the alpha privative. It means not. Thesmos is a word that describes a foundation. So it's saying they don't have a foundation in their life. That's why they're wicked. Like the Psalm 6 says, if the foundations crumble, what will the righteous do? So these are, the wicked are those who have no foundation, no foundation of truth, no foundation uh, of of morality, it makes them lawless, unprincipled, licentious, corrupt, and the Bible uses the term evil as a synonym for it. In verse eight, we go on to read about Lot that for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul. So these are two. Re- he's not happy. Now, he looked happy. He lived like everybody else. He had, he had all of the opulence of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, all of the pleasure. He looked good. But in his soul, that's something that, that we have a hard time understanding sometimes. We look at people, and they are, look like they're getting away with all kinds of sin and depravity and everything. But we don't know what's going on in their soul. And we have a peek at Lot's soul here is that it was tormented. The word is bassanizo, which means tortured, tormented. He's miserable on the inside. He, he's living where he wanted to live. He has all the trappings of, of the city life that he wanted and all of the pleasures and everything that he wanted to indulge in. But it's made him absolutely miserable in his soul. It tortured his righteous soul. It's received the imputation of righteousness. 
tortured, tormented his righteous soul from day to day. And the word there, tortured, is interesting. Basanizo is in the imperfect tense, which means continuous action in past time, which is reinforced by saying from day to day. So the verb tense says from day to day, and then he says it as well to make sure nobody misses it. By seeing and hearing their lawless deeds, he just can't get away from it. He's just exposing himself to it. I'll never forget one time, this was 20 years ago, we flew to Kazakhstan. Pam and I flew there from Connecticut, and we were going over to teach at a pastor's conference in Almaty. And George Meisinger was flying. He was coming from L.A., so he... He ended up with some kind of a weird deal. He, he, he could have come across from California, uh, across the Pacific, but he went the long route, and he had to spend the night in a hotel in Germany. And I think that was the first time George had ever seen pornography, and he was just still embarrassed three or four days later. He had never seen any, and, it, and from what I understand, I haven't been to Germany since I was in high school, they didn't do that back then, is that it's just it bestiality, everything. You just can't imagine how gross it is. And, and uh, George was just, uh, I, I mean, he just could not believe that was just on regular commercial TV just horrible and we wonder why western civilization is imploding in jude 7 the only thing we really learn there is that that the sin is identified as giving given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh and that is the way that we should answer when people tell us no 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 their their pride their, their pride was the real sin. Uh, and then they'll go to passages in uh, Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel in order to show that. And so what we have to do is be familiar. We'll, we'll get there when I come back is be familiar with what's in those chapters to show, no, 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 that's not talking about literal Sodom. That's talking about uh, Jerusalem imitating Sodom and that their problem uh, was actually arrogant. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to that. And then we have to recognize that as believers, we are not to become intimate with those who are in the world system like this. In, in paganism, and we're going to see this illustrated in our study of the book of Judges, uh, Judges illustrates how a, when a culture becomes pagan, they become enmeshed in sexual perversion. And the, one of the effects of that is that it destroys the individual's understanding of their own sexual identity. Men are no longer men, males, as God intended them to be as leaders in the home who are faithful to their wife. And women are no longer feminine, and men want to be women, and women want to be men. And they can't figure out who they are. And the reason we have gender confusion today isn't because the, somehow the hormones or the DNA got mixed up in these kids. The reason these kids are confused about life is more fundamental they're being brought up in a world that is more confused about life, and they pick it up. And it's just horrible. I mean, this is real child abuse. If you think that you've got a three- or four-year-old kid, you've got a boy, and he's playing with dolls, he's going to grow out of that. But you take that as a hint that he's really a girl, and you start pursuing that, that is horrific child abuse. Because studies have shown that, that before puberty, you, kids can be all over the place. They don't understand these identity things until puberty hits. And then the, those little girls, that th- those little boys that thought they were a little girl, all of a sudden they're going to realize they're a little boy. And it's going to happen on the other side too. And yet if they've had these drugs and they've had everything, oh, we're just destroying a generation. It's just horrific, absolutely horrific. But that is what happens in in paganism. 
We'll see in Judges that women are no longer protected. Uh, they're no longer honored by, by men because part of being a man is that you understand your job is to honor and protect those who are uh, less strong and less capable. And that does, I've known a lot of women who are a lot smarter and brighter than a lot of men, but it's just a physical reality that women, no matter how much they get in shape, uh, are not going to outdo a guy. And, oh, it's just horrific. You all have seen all these memes that are going around now that that um, uh, Biden has come along and he's he's going to allow all these uh, transgenders to uh, men to participate in women's athletic events. It's going to destroy women. So talk about something that is anti-woman. I mean, this is really destructive of women. It is destructive of women's athletics. And yet those who support that just think this is the ultimate in true feminism. It tells you where real feminism was headed all along, doesn't it? It's the destruction of the biblical identities of men and women. It's just horrific. You have this breakdown in role distinctions. You have this breakdown in uh, in in the home. You have the breakdown in family. So what happens when a when a culture when a believer gets mired in the culture around him, the cosmic system from the Greek word cosmos with a K. That's really a description of the culture around us. And there's always a negative satanic world system around us, no matter how much a country or culture has the Word of God in it. There's still a lot of unbelievers and a lot of believers who have their sin natures run amok. And so there's always sin. There's never any perfection this side of heaven. And when a believer is giving free reign to his sin nature and is absorbing the values and the um, the norms and standards and the desires of, of a pagan culture, what that's ultimately going to do is it's going to create an antagonism in their soul to the Word of God. And this is going to touch some of you very personally and I can't tell you how many of us have children who have turned their back on the Bible. They've been brought up in Sunday school and everything else. But what you as a parent, what I as a parent, what we, what we never saw was what was going on in their soul. And that in the privacy of their soul, they were encouraging this attraction to the values of their friends, their peers, and the world system. And that was making war against their soul. And then when they turn 20 or 21 or 18 or 19, they go off to college and somebody uh, gives them some, or some rationale they can use against the Bible, they're going to grab hold of it and then adios, they're gone. And, and there's a, Kim ha- Ken Ham wrote a book called Already Gone. It came out probably 10 years ago describing how many young people who grow up in Christian homes, they're just not taught the Bible. They're not taught apologetics. They're not taught how to think and defend themselves against the assaults of the world. And so they end up just absorbing it. Uh, We have to have, in our lives, we have to build walls against this and separate ourselves from it. And, and uh, we, we didn't necessarily have to do that 40, 50, 60 years ago, but it's a different world now. And it's not legalism. It's just self, self-protection. And this is what 2 Corinthians six fourteen and 15 is, is getting at. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And the idea of yoking is when you have a team of oxen or horses that are pulling a wagon, and that you try to team a horse with an ox, that isn't going to work, and it's going to be destructive. And so then he goes on to say, for what fellowship, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? I remember my first church, I was brought up on this. You've heard me tell this story. When I was a little kid, little kid, five, six years old, I would come home and I'd meet somebody at school, 
And my mother, the first question out of her mouth was always, are they a believer? Well, after a while, I got to where I said, if I come home and I'm going to talk about some new, new friend that I met at school, I better find out if he's a believer before I mention it to my mother. Now, you may think, well, you don't need to be doing that when they're four, five, six, seven years old. Yes, you do. Because when they're 14, 15, and 16, and they want to bring that girl home, and now they've heard you ask, are they a believer for the last 10 years? And they know this girl isn't a believer, and it's not the kind of girl that mama wants me to bring home. They're, they're going to think twice, and they're, they're not going to do it. But if you haven't laid that groundwork when they're little, it's too late when they're 12 or 13. That, that ship has sailed. And I, I, th- I didn't like it at the time, but I thank God my mother was that way. And when I went to my first church, I was amazed because most of the congregation there was a lot like our congregation now. They were, they were in there. We, we didn't have, what, two people in the congregation between 25 and 55. And I'd say, well, where, where, where are your kids? Because they still lived in the area. Oh, well, my daughter married a Catholic, and they go once or twice a year Christmas and Easter, or my daughter married an atheist, or my son married somebody, and she's off into New Age crystals and everything else. And and they didn't ever teach their kids that they weren't supposed to be getting involved with unbelievers. And those unbelievers led them astray. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? Why are we mix, letting these things go, act as if this isn't important? He goes on to say, Or what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? See, that last line is what he's driving to with all the other examples. And we have to be cautious and careful about those intimate relationships that we have. And we have friends as, a, as an adult, I have a number of friends that are not believers. But they have a lot of historically solid values. And I get an opportunity to witness to them, but I'm never going to be close to them like I am with believers. But I have a number of Jewish friends, and it always strikes me. I think of that passage where Paul says that when we know a believer dies, we will grieve, but not like those who have no hope. But when my unbeliever friends die, I will grieve like those who have no hope because there won't be any hope. And, you know, we have to build some relationships so that we can, we can give the gospel to people when they, when they need it. But we have to be careful and not be caught up in, in belief systems and lifestyles that undercut our biblical faith. Isaiah says, "'Woe to those who call evil good and good evil.'" who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You know, there's part of me that wants to go ahead and make the comment, you know it's coming. Should a Christian parent let their son or daughter become good friends with somebody who's a a liberal leftist Democrat? That's an important question to address. And it's not being legalistic, and it's not being biased or prejudiced. It is recognizing that there's a worldview difference. And if your son or daughter becomes attracted to that pagan worldview, then they're going to have real problems, and so are you. And that's what happened in Israel, is that there were those who had turned the tables on what was right and what was wrong. Micah, who is a prophet in Israel, same time as Isaiah, said, You who hate good and love evil, who tear off the skin from them and their flesh from their bones, it's destructive. So this is what, what, this is what Lot had to put up with, righteous Lot, living in the midst of all of that paganism. So we'll come back when I get back from Kiev, pray for me, pray that things go well, going there, coming back, and that uh, we have a good, profitable time with the students in uh, going through. I'm teaching rewards and judgments again this year. So it's, uh, it's always a, a, a good course. So uh, pray for that, and then I'll be back 
back in two weeks. You will uh, enjoy Wayne. And the second week, Tuesday and Thursday night, is going to be taught by Scott Griffin. Scott covered for me once before. Scott is a seminary student. He he's, goes to a church, good doctrinal church, over in Baytown, where he gets the pulpit once a month. There is only one way to learn how to teach in the pulpit, and that's to teach in the pulpit. And a congregation's responsibility is to be there, to, to be an audience for these men that are learning to teach, and that's the only way they can do it. And uh, Scott has, I think, great potential uh, as a student. I, I recognized this when he was one of my students, and I've been mentoring him, trying to, I try to teach these guys how to study, how to get into the Word, how to do what they want to do. And it, it's, they're not, you can't, don't get taught that at seminary anymore, not at the traditional seminaries where we all thought people needed to go in order to learn how to do it. And so the only place they can learn it is from pastors who are mentoring them and giving them opportunities, and that means congregations to be there. And uh, I could list three or four that this congregation knows that, that uh, some of you were there and heard them in their first five or six messages and suffered through. But that's how they learn. Now they're pastors and they're doing great jobs. But that's that's part of growing, and it gives us a great privilege to help them. So I encourage you to be here for uh, for, for for Scott when he's here, and encourage him uh, in the Word because I, I think he's got great potential. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be here this evening to study your Word and to reflect upon what is really going on during these times in these examples, and we see this around us. And, Father, we pray that you might help us to stand firm, to stand fast, to erect the walls against us from Scripture that protect us from the assaults of the world, that protect us from letting these sinful practices and beliefs enter into our souls and to cause spiritual damage. Father, alert us to the fact that truth is truth and everything else is just a deception and we need to fall in love with the truth. As Jesus says, the truth truly does make us free, free from the slavery of sin. Father, we pray that you challenge us with your word each day in Christ's name. Amen.